You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Hello, kitties. <laughs> Welcome to a special spooky episode of No Love Lost. And it's an episode that we've been dying for you to hear. <laughs> but first, as always, this episode of No Love Lost is brought to you by FredHeBakes.com. That's FredHeBakes.com. As I mentioned, the spooky season is here and in full swing, so why not treat yourself to some delicious baked goods? Guys, they are absolutely delicious and I cannot recommend them enough so head on over to fredhebakes.com use the coupon code NOLOVELOST to get 20% off of your order and if you're looking for other ways to support the podcast head on over to the podcastjukebox.com and get yourself some No Love Lost merchandise like No Love Lost t-shirts or crazy about Kurt t-shirts guys I know that this spooky season isn't quite the same as it normally is uh, in years past, but we just wanted to wish you well. It's my favorite time of the year, so I hope you are enjoying the season. I hope you are staying safe and staying healthy. We just wanted to let you know that we appreciate your support, and we hope you're doing well. So please stay safe out there, everybody. We love you. And on that note, Michelle, if you would be so kind. Let's go to the island I would like to see the polar bears There was a crash And there are others And there are numbers And it all means something supposedly But even though there are times we We had to go back. Well, then what are we waiting for, Will? Let's get this party started! I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> um, You've always got to be prepared to party, my dude. I was prepared to tell you that for once, we don't have to go back, Megan. What? No, 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 no! <laughs> we have to get the party started! But we do have to get the party started. Welcome back to No Love Lost, the podcast in which we discuss one of our favorite horror films of the last 10 years. <laughs> I was just about to disagree with you because uh, I thought you were going to end that sentence with one of our favorite shows and I was going to interject with lies and slander, but no, not this time. Not this time. Um, This is a bonus episode of uh, No Love Lost. Yeah, our upload schedule has been a little inconsistent with some audio issues and obviously the, the global pandemic that's going on. So we thought we'd kind of give you guys this extra content just as a as a fun thing for, for you guys and as a fun thing for us because, like, we've been wanting to talk about this movie, actually, for a good long while. And, you know, it's funny because we're... It, it did feel like a little bit of a... Not that... Rewatching Lost during a pandemic is like a chore, but it did feel like a little mental break for me being like, oh, this will be like shake things up a little bit because we've also been recording a little more 
consistently too. Yeah, we've uh, yeah. Normally, we we have our recording sessions spread out a little bit, which is why uh, the the backlog of recordings was so important to us um, because it allowed for us if there was any delay in our ability to record it allowed us to kind of space things out that way well now we've we've been recording very consistently and we have quite a few episodes in our backlog it's just a matter of putting them together and putting them together has been quite a handful so it's like oh this is harder than i thought so we noticed that um this season and we talked about uh him in some of the episodes recently but we noticed this season is very heavy with the terrific screenwriter drew goddard so we thought it would be fun to take a little break from lost and talk about drew goddard's directorial debut a film that i adore and i know megan adores the Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. Anybody who knows me knows how much I adore horror movies. And Cabin in the Woods is like the ultimate love letter to the genre as a whole. I think, I think what I love about this movie, and you're a bigger horror movie person than I am. Not that I dislike horror movies, well, but what I think I... I was going to say, you're a, you're a movie fan, Will, regardless of genre. Exactly. And I think what I love about this film is that what it's really about is it is a movie about movies. It is a movie about watching movies in a lot of ways and things that we're going to get into. Like, this is a very meta film for a film viewer, for someone who eats this yeah. stuff up, who loves sitting in a movie theater and watching movies. It's it's a very meta film, but at no, at no point during its runtime do I ever feel like it's being pretentious about about like its subject matter in any any way shape or form which i think is a danger that a lot of meta films or or meta media in general i think that's something that some meta materials sort of yeah. fall into because it's like oh i'm self aware aren't i so smart um this never feels like it's bragging about how smart it is. It's just smart and fun. With it, it, it it's great. It's great. Um, we should probably do our normal thing. We're we're not gonna break it down like we no would a lost episode per se. But uh, if you have not seen Cabin in the Woods, uh, even if you're not necessarily a horror movie fan. I think we both would wholeheartedly recommend that you see it unspoiled, if at all possible. Yeah, uh, pause this, go watch it, now you're back. <laughs> um, yeah, cause, and we're not going to necessarily go like beat by beat like we do with Lost, so we're going to have more of a free-flowing thing, but I, I, I want to get into a lot of aspects of this, but I think first, let's talk about uh, Drew Goddard because he's the reason why he's the he's the lost connection as to why we're doing this yeah and it, it, it's interesting in Drew Goddard's career he's written a lot of television and he's and and this is where the cross-section of uh, the cabin in the woods and lost come into play it seems like he's had a lot of also great creative partners 
so his first writing credits are on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That makes sense, given uh, given who his co-writer on this film was. And he goes on to yeah, co-write The Cabin in the Woods with Joss Whedon. Also, before Lost, he was a writer on Alias, another J.J. Abrams show. Ah, this guy, what an interesting career he's had as a writer. And he goes on to write Cloverfield, which was produced by J.J. Uh, Abrams. The the original Cloverfield, The original, right? yes. I forgot that that was him. Ooh. Yeah. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that now, too. Um, so he goes on to write that. Uh, and then he writes nine episodes of Lost. And uh, he wrote... One episode in season one, the episode Outlaws, which you may remember is the episode where Sawyer goes to hunt down a boar. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one, right? That was a real good one. That was that was an excellent one. I believe directed by Jack Bender, um, if I'm not mistaken, if my if my memory isn't failing me. And. I believe you are correct, actually, in that. I'll, I could double check. I mean, statistically speaking, I'm probably correct. <laughs> it was, it, you You were correct, Jack Bender. <laughs> I mean, if he directed the most number of Lost episodes, then you could, you know, throw, you could pick, pick a name out of a hat and it's like, mm, how likely is it going to be that it was Jack Bender? If you're going to take an educated guess, make that guess, Jack Bender. <laughs> then... He doesn't write any episodes in season two, but he comes back in and writes five episodes in the season. We're currently discussing season three, and he writes a few big ones, uh, The Glass Ballerina, and he did Flashes Before Your Eyes, which is the big Desmond episode of the season, and Desmond, it's kind of the episode that starts sending Desmond down like... I think I, this I think it's time fair to say traveling that. bunnies rabbit hole. <laughs> I would. I was gonna say Drew Goddard's the one who sent them down the path that uh, made Desmond one of our most beloved characters in the history of the show. It has. It like that episode has indeed been the best episode in season three so far. I don't know if I. I, I would have to look at my favorites from um, season two and season one. Um, but yeah. Flashes Before Your Eyes is so insanely good. And again, this is coming from somebody who is not a big um, fan of the way Lost handles time travel. Um, but yeah, it's so, so, so good. Uh, so what other episodes does he write um, this season? Well, this season, the next episode he writes this season is The Man from Tallahassee, which is the episode in which we find out how John Locke got in the wheelchair. Ha! <laughs> oh boy so, oh boy so it's a big episode and then he writes um the episode um one of one of us and he writes the episode the man behind the curtain and then in the following season season four he writes three episodes including uh one uh he uh confirmed dead the other woman, but the big one is the final episode of Lost that he writes is The Shape of Things to Come, which is a great Benjamin Linus episode. And I guess, Lost spoiler, because this is the Lost podcast, 
Um, it's the episode where uh, they kill Ben's daughter. Ah, you know, it's so interesting that even just listing off the the titles of these episodes, like knowing that he co-wrote Cabin in the Woods sounds very reminiscent, <laughs> actually. Like, it sounds like those fit Drew Goddard really well. And I'm wondering if that wasn't, like, intentional when it came to, like, assigning who's going to write what episode or if it was, like... um or if maybe writing for Lost sort of shaped him in this way. I will tell you one thing, Will. You know what I'm super surprised by as you're going through um, these episodes that he's written? What? I am super surprised that he actually didn't write anything in season two because a man in a hatch pressing a button underneath the earth sounds like it's like Oh my God. Right at home, you know, to prevent the end of the world, that sounds like some Cabin in the Woods bullshit, doesn't it? That is exactly Cabin in the Woods, which is kind of incredible. So I'm wondering Um, if maybe even though he didn't write anything directly related to that particular premise, if kind of working on Lost and having the hatch be a component of, you know, the show that he was working on, wonder if maybe that planted a little bit of seed of uh, the, the seed of inspiration maybe so it's also interesting to me he never directs an episode of lost or any of these tv shows he's working on the first thing he directs credited director is the cabin in the woods has he directed anything since um he he has directed since he has directed four episodes of the good place and ah! Good for him. And he directed one other um, feature film seven years after Cabin in the Woods, Bad Times at the El Royale. Have you ever seen Bad Times at the El Royale? I have not, but I do remember, like, oh, directed by Drew Goddard, and at the time thinking, like, oh, that's awesome. I should see that. And then I didn't. I, <laughs> I, I really enjoy the film. I saw it in theaters, and I saw it again kind of piecemeal on HBO. And I re- – okay. Uh, bad time, Go for it. Go bad for Times it. at the El Royale is the definition of a movie that's probably 20 minutes too long. It's like, it's like, it's about two hours and 20 minutes, and it's like, uh, this is a little long, but I really enjoy it. I think it's a, a twisty bunch of characters. Um, you don't really know where the story's going. Jeff Bridges in it, is in it, and he's great. Cynthia Revo is fantastic in it, and you get to hear her sing, which is always a treat. Um, John Hamm and Chris Hemsworth is in it as well. Also, that makes sense. <laughs> also, that film features a lot of two-way mirrors in this hotel, which interesting eh, two-way mirror in the cabin in the woods. So there's certain things he likes having people underground pushing buttons. Well, I guess he didn't write any of that stuff, but but um, but he he clearly liked the idea. Yes, <laughs> um, and uh, two-way mirrors and Chris Hemsworth. And why wouldn't you? I mean, who doesn't love Chris Hemsworth? <laughs> well, let's let's. Um. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say let's get into the actual movie, The Cabin in the Woods. But did you want to add something else? Oh, I, I was just wondering if, like, at any point we we're talking, gonna talk about his uh, inspiration for the the film. 
um, anything. I'm sure we'll get into it um, because the, he I I haven't done a ton of behind the scenes research on this, but I I do know for a fact one of his major inspirations came from his upbringing. Oh, uh, is there more that you or do you want to save that? Uh, up to you. Whatever you want to talk about. Well, I guess if you want to talk about the does it? <laughs> well, now I'm just curious. Does his upbringing relate to a plot point in the film or something we see in the film? Uh, and you're saving just, it for that. Just the setting. Just the setting. Oh. Um, it like, uh, he grew up basically. I forget the the name of the city, but he basically grew up where the Manhattan Project was um was worked mm-hmm. on. Like, and uh, one of the things that he, I, I watched uh, an episode of Dead Meat on um, on this episode in particular, and one of the things that um, Drew Goddard has stated came as, like, inspiration in writing this movie was that he grew up where a lot of people worked on the Manhattan Project, and it was just these normal, regular, everyday people who were working on essentially, like, who were wielding immense destructive power and you know but they were they were normal that's okay that's that is perfect for this and that really is what uh, what Richard Jenkins and and uh, Bradley Whitford are in this film um <clears throat> before we get completely into that uh, I just want to round out his credits a little bit uh, he Go he also it. was a co-writer on World War Z with our buddy Damon Lindelof. Really? Yep. Uh, Interesting. Because I really liked the book and thought the movie was pretty bleh. I happen to like the movie, but the book is another. Like, that book should have been... It should have been a miniseries. Yes. Yeah. Uh Yes, I'm with you totally. It should have been a miniseries, or it should have focused on one of the many stories in in World War Z, like in that book, it, and like made one of them the central character. World War Z, that book is uh, a perfect example of something that could have been a great anthology series, like 10 episodes Absolutely. of television, each episode a different moment in that war. Um, but he also went on to get an Oscar nomination for adapting The Martian for the big screen. Oh, damn, dude. That's awesome. And he's also was involved with uh, the Daredevil TV show, too. He was the showrunner for that. The the Netflix one. Oh, that's so good. That's awesome. Like, guy knows his stuff. Guy, like, guy clearly knows his stuff. Well, what you're talking about with his background, I think, really cues it up perfectly for the first scene of Cabin in the Woods. And one of the things I love about this movie is, and they even said, him and Joss Whedon, who wrote this script over three days. Three days. That is insane to me. That is insane to me. I'm sure there must have been rewrites after that. But to even just get down the first draft of this in three days, that's pretty impressive. Um, But what they even said was about that first scene, Drew Goddard said he wanted you to think you might be in the wrong movie. And I was going to say, to his credit, that is exactly what I kind of thought when me and my friend sat down that fateful day in the movie theater. Um, 
Kristen, our, our, our associate, Kristen, um, she and I used to do a podcast called the, the drive home where, you know, we, we did a lot of like red carpet coverage for a web series we were working on. And so a lot of times we would talk about the event, uh, on our way back home. And a lot of times we would, um, you know, kind of also just kind of review movies on the fly on our way back home too, uh, because we were roommates at the time. And, um, yeah, we, we sat down and we looked at the screen and we looked at each other and we're like, are we in the right theater? Like what's happening? It's great because it opens with, first of all, you've got two of the great character actors of our time with Bradley Whitford and, and Richard Jenkins. And they're great character actors. Cause they're also like, they're, they could play a vast amount of roles, but they're, they're also kind of every men. Yeah, it's so funny because like they're they're they are very much everyman in this in this movie. And but like we've also seen them play bad guys, like kind of cartoonishly bad for uh for Bradley, you know, back, way back when with Billy Madison. But then he's also like in Get Out <laughs> and like one of the major bad guys in that. He would have voted for Obama third term. <laughs> And uh, I, I believe um, the other actor, I'm sorry, what did you say his name was? Uh, Richard Jenkins. It's escaping me. Yes, he was in The Shape of Water recently, too. He's it's just like, oh. Two-time Oscar nominee. He's, um, like, both of them are pitch perfect in this role. Um, And this movie really gives them a chance. So first of all, you start with this scene where they're just, like, talking about the childproof in the cabinets and his wife wants to have a baby and Richard Jenkins is kind of giving Bradley Whitford some shit and they're they're like then complaining about like oh, they got to get to work and and Amy Acker comes in and is giving them hell and they're just like man like we we got this like we and they're vaguely talking about their job something about the Japan office you assume and you're like where are we what are we doing so it sets them up as these really like almost kind of milk toast guys. But the other thing, and I've heard Bradley Whitford say one of the reasons he he wanted to take this part is he never he assumed this would be the only time in his career he'd get to fire a machine gun. <laughs> and it's true because by the end of this movie, he's shooting a gun, they're fighting off monsters. It's batshit like crazy. Scare- Scarecrow people and tentacle monsters and mermans. Yeah. So that's spot on casting. Like, uh, uh, honestly, if you if you got a script and like, um, you know, you're uh, say you're an actor uh, or or uh, and, and you get this script and they're like, we want you to play a role in this movie and you read it. Like, what would your reaction have been had you been uh, Bradley Whitford in that scenario? Oh, I would think, like, this is going to be the time of my life. Like, I would think that yeah, this is, I exactly. finally got a thing I could just sink my teeth into and have a good time. And I'm not just some guy who works in the West Wing right now. I can do whatever I want. Like, I, I'm not, like, if I were a professional actor, like, and I got a script like this. I would be on cloud frickin' nine, man. This is the dream. <laughs> Of course, we also in the cast, we have some of those Joss Whedon regulars. I mentioned Amy Acker before, who I always like when she pops up and things. I think she always does a solid job. She's fun. Yeah. 
and she works in the chem lab. She works in chem for uh, uh, our little uh, little underground god pleasing uh, workforce here. For the uh, the organization. organization. I don't know if they ever get. I don't know if they ever get a name. And you also, amongst the uh, quote-unquote kids who are going to the cabin in the woods, you have uh, Fran Kranz, who was on uh, – he was on Dollhouse, I believe. That's where I knew him from before this, another Joss Whedon uh, program. Uh, By the way, you know why his character keeps his shirt on when they go jump in the, the lake? Is it because he has tattoos or something? It's because he was in such physically good shape, they didn't want him to expose how, like, ripped he was. Because he's supposed to be kind of like the pothead weirdo guy and, like, Hemsworth and the other guy. He's supposed to be shaggy. Yeah, exactly. So, but... Holy cow, I did not know that. (laughs) That's amazing. Because, yeah, he's supposed to be the burnout. Yeah, so they didn't want him taking off his shirt when he went with everybody to the lake. But the casting coup really is Chris Hemsworth because Chris Hemsworth is cast in this movie. And they filmed this movie. But because there were so many delays, like this movie I was supposed to be released, I think, in maybe as early as 09 doesn't come out till 2011 yeah. because MGM went bankrupt. Yeah, it sat on... I was wondering why it shat, sat on the shelf. And thank you, you've answered my question. <laughs> so in that time, Chris Hemsworth um, starts getting cast in bigger things. And he got cast as Thor. Like, they looked at this footage of him in this film was one of the things they looked at when they were doing their Thor casting. So this comes out after Thor, but he's Thor because of this. Yes, that's incredible. Like, um, did this come out uh, right before the Avengers did? Because I believe this came out in 2011 and Avengers came out in 2012. So yeah, a year before that. So yeah, this this would have come out right after Thor, um, and and before the event. Oh man, what a what a t- like looking back on it. What a time to be a geek. <laughs> and Hemsworth must have liked working with Drew Goddard because he comes back to play a Charlie Manson esque figure in um in uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. El- I I think this role in particular is so, like uh, again. Granted, this was before he was Thor. You know, one of the faces of the MCU. But, like, I can totally see why why they thought he was a great fit for Thor. Uh, Because not only is he just immensely charming, but he, like, he can give depth to a character. Because that's the whole thing about everybody in this cast. Everybody in this cast of characters, on the surface, you know... You could see them as stereotypes, but in fact, as people, they are not those stereotypes. Like his character is supposed to be the jock, but he's brilliant and insightful and funny, and uh, he's a sociology and major. He's all of those things. Yeah, on full academic scholarship. <laughs> yeah. Um. So 
I, I feel like he he was perfect in this movie, and I think it's one of those things where it reminds you of, like, maybe somebody at some point after Thor The Dark World didn't do so well, they were like, oh, yeah, Chris Hemsworth can be really funny. Like, they rewatched this movie or something, and they're like, maybe we should make the next Thor movie a comedy. <laughs> the, um, uh, rounding out the cast, just, uh, and uh, Jesse Williams is the other, uh, I guess he's the... I guess he's the quote-unquote scholar. Uh, <laughs> and you have as the whore, you have Anna Hutchinson. And as the quote-unquote virgin, uh, Kristen Connolly, who I think is really wonderful in this film, but I have never seen in anything else. She has a lot of TV credits. She was in a show like Zoo, and she's popped up in other things. But I am, I am unfamiliar with her beyond this. Yeah, kind of same. Like it's it's one of those things where she she looks like a perfect final girl, and yet, yeah, I I don't know why we don't see her in more movies. She was great. They were all great in this. And let's also just talk about another amazing bit of casting. So Sigourney Weaver. Perfect. Perfect. I remember when her voice first came over the PA system going, if that's who I think it is, this movie just went up a notch. Like, and, and I'm already like really enjoying myself. <laughs> so that was honestly casting her just the icing on the cake. And the thing about this movie is the Sigourney Weaver is just another thing of playing in to all the perfect horror tropes, but then finding a way to subvert them through other means. But, you know, having Sigourney Weaver, this this sci-fi movie legend, pop up. She's Ripley, yeah. yeah. Pop up in the at the end of this film. Um, but even, like, the cabin itself. I mean, it's Evil Dead. It's the Evil Dead cabin. It is. Like, if you look at it, like, if you compare screenshots, like, they, they very deliberately modeled this cabin off of the uh evil dead cabin for sure like right down to the cellar <laughs> and then even the monsters that they have like there's one that's a very pinhead-esque mon like i mean he's not he's got like like saw blades through his face instead of pinheads but i mean he's pinhead basically i he's he's pinhead and i think in the credits he's given the name like Fornicus, demon of like bondage and pain or something like that and i'm like ah oh, that sounds like pinhead so they i mean they take everything that you have well it's like they say in the film it's like these are like what nightmares these are the things that nightmares are from these yeah. these creatures are the things that have lived in all of a movie going audience's nightmares forever it's like, did you ever see Wes Craven's new nightmare? Uh, yes. Um, like, it's it's kind of like that, because the whole idea behind Wes Craven's new nightmare is that this ancient evil was contained within these films, um, that Wes Craven started having dreams about this Freddy-like character. And so he's, you know, he's contained the evil in this in this franchise. But again, it's that whole like his dreams were coming from somewhere. There was an evil entity out there. And so you can sort of see how like in a very similar way, Cabin in the Woods has been like, yeah, there are evil entities out there and they influence us without us ever knowing it. 
Um, and so it has all these established like genre things. Like even the the uh, the monsters that end up attacking them are the um, the zombie redneck torture family is what they're <laughs> called. Not to be confused with regular zombies. No, 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 no. Um, but there's nothing too original about them but that's also weirdly why the film works because it's yeah it's almost kind of the point yeah it's feeding into what we expect from these things and along the way the people in our control room uh below the surface of the earth they have to create the stereotypes like you were saying the jock the athlete he's very smart they have to find ways to dumb him down uh, using chemicals, using the, 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 uh, the, the um, blanket, the Jules character, the, I, I didn't want to just call her the whore. Um, the yeah, Jules, no, let's not do that anymore. <laughs> the Jules. Jules. The Jules character. They talk about how. They've had to chemically, uh, basically through her hair dye they've had to chemically slow down her cognition so she acts like a dumb blonde and um when the two of them go off to to fornicate in the woods um like they have to turn up the temperature so that she's not cold and they have to release chemicals to increase libido all this other stuff to like basically manipulate these kids into doing exactly what dumb kids do in horror movies and they are basically creating the dumb horror movie for to appease the old gods and what i love about this movie is that you and I, Megan, are the old gods. This Hell yeah, we are. This movie <laughs> is like, that's what the old god, gods really are. They're a stand-in for the audience. And, you know, it's like, do we want to see, uh, do we want to see breasts? Yeah, we want to see breasts. We kind of want to see We're breasts. We're not the only ones watching yeah. is the way it's put in the film. Uh, do we want to see this this horrible violence? Hey, that's why we buy tickets to horror movies. Gotta you know? keep the customer satisfied. And we, you know, and we root for these characters, but we also, we take this perverse thrill in watching them being tortured. And... What Drew Goddard did with this film was he really turns it back as a reflection upon us. And I think it's so smart. It's really the next, you know, after Scream did the self-aware horror thing, it's like, where do you go with that concept? And he found... (laughs) And damn it, they found a way. He found a, a new way to go with that. And I find that so impressive. It's extremely impressive, especially because after Scream came out for like at least five years, every horror movie that came out was trying to be Scream. Um, and so you have a bu- you've got Scream and its sequels and then a bunch of derivatives of Scream, all kind of trying to be like self-aware and hip and cool. And then, you, and then for a while that went away, and it was just kind of like remake city for <laughs> for like a decade, um, except for the indie stuff. And so something like Cabin in the Woods was something that was 
really not expected on my part because I I kind of thought we were just going to live in remake and sequel hell for forever. And so it's incredible that they were able to make this movie that is both just like every horror movie you've seen and unlike any horror movie you've ever seen. Now, this movie is nine years old, and I have trouble remembering a lot of the marketing of this film, although I remember it being difficult to market. Uh, and I, rem- I kind of assumed that the marketing was one of the reasons why it stayed on the shelves for so long. Well, I, we didn't know going in about any of this. Like, it was, from my memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I very well could be, my memory was I knew there was more to it just because it had played some, like, Fantastic Fest and things like that. But I didn't know I, I didn't know it was anything more than just, a like, kind of an Evil Dead type movie. Okay. I wish I could have traded places with you then. Because I distinctly remember I was, like, YouTubing one night. And then... Um, you know, the trailer for Cabin in the Woods starts playing. And it just shows a bunch of teens jumping into a leg, hanging out at a cabin. And I love me, my horror movies. But no joke that the trailer started and I went, Ugh, oh my God, because it looked so derivative. Yeah. And no joke, my hand was reaching for the mouse so that I could clip Click on the skip ad button when all of a sudden that eagle hits the shield. And I went, wait, what? And that's when I held off my hand. And that's when the rest of the trailer showed. And they showed, even though they didn't show a lot, they showed bits and pieces from the control room. And on the one hand, I hate, I hate this trailer for having shown me that. Because it gave away... In my opinion, even that was giving away too much. On the other hand, it was the thing that kept me watching the trailer. So I empathize with both creators and marketing people because a lot of times neither of those groups see eye to eye on what is best to show in promotional material. And I'm mad because it gave away too much. And yet knowing that is what got my butt in the in the theater that day. That's Yeah, that's the thing, because the selling point of the film is the very thing you don't want to know going into the film. That's why any time I've ever talked to anybody about this movie, I ask, do you know anything about it? And when they say no, I go, good, now watch it. (laughs) And to this day, I still actually... um, recommend it to friends that way uh even just as recently as this past year i i was talking to a co-worker who her husband loves horror movies and i go uh so have you guys seen cabin in the woods and she's like you know i have heard of it but i've never seen it and i was just like oh um uh, i could lend it to you but like don't look at the box <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, so it- that's why we said at the top of the show, if you don't know anything about this movie, go go check it out. Yeah, because the whole thing, these kids in the cabin are being manipulated to appease old gods by people, by a bunch of white-collar guys in a control room underneath the earth. It's it's insane. And it, it's insane that it like it's like a magic trick because it completely works. They completely pull it off. And they even, even the people who are trying to appease the old gods 
are taking the piss out of what they're doing. The scene with the harbinger, where the oh, harbinger, it's so great. First of all, the scene with the harbinger is great, and I also like the way the kids handle the harbinger because the harbinger is really pushing them. And, the, and he's really laying it on thick, too. <laughs> yeah. And the Marty character, there's the, the moment I like where he, like, gives the Harbinger shit about, like, the... Which is also a great <laughs> line. And he's like, she's like, what war is that? And he's like, you know damn well what war. And it's like, what? No, we don't. We honestly <laughs> no, don't. No, because it's, what era are we in? <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, oh, is that the one with the guys with the blue fighting the guys with the gray? And the Harbinger get mad. And I like the moment he's like... It's, he's not being a shitty kid. He is staying because he says, like, you were rude to my friend. And that right there tells you everything you need to know about Marty is that he values his friends probably above everything else. Which is why when all he's the first to notice, he's the first to notice a lot of things. He's the first to notice the there's the, uh, the cameras. He's the first to notice, like. Like, his friends are acting weird. But He's be- the first to notice the whispering voices saying, read it, and I'm going to go for a walk. Which is great. <laughs> um, but it, it is interesting how, and, uh, you know, they talk about how they the sacrifice, they can't just throw a girl in a volcano. They have to make this entertaining for the old gods but there is something where they're making the characters make these choices the harbinger or when they're in the 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 um the basement or cellar having to decide like the thing that will end up killing them yeah they they say uh we stack the deck in our favor in every single way we can but at the end of the day if they don't transgress they can't be punished. And that's what it comes down to, is punishing these characters for being kids. Are they just doing that to keep themselves up at night? No, don't keep themselves <laughs> up at night. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, either way, they're killing these kids. And are they just, del- they're just deluding themselves because the humans who have to run this have to, on some level, delude themselves to make themselves feel a little oh, better. For sure. <clears throat> they, they, one... The fate of the world is at stake, so there's that, you know. It's, um, you have, like, the, the fate of, you know, the fate of the entire population of the planet Earth riding on what you're doing. Um, but yeah, at the, like, if, if you are basically drugging people and then sending monsters out to kill them, then yeah, you have to rationalize it <laughs> to yourself in some way, shape, or form of, like, uh, well, they're being punished. Like, we we did some stuff, yes, but, like, they're the ones that chose to come here. We we put as many red flags as we could all over the place. They chose to be here, so it's their fault that they die. <laughs> and one by one, our kids, after they choose, through reading the diary, the they summon the zombie redneck torture Oh, but he family. had the conscience in his hand. That's the other great runner through this, that... All Bradley Whitford's character wants to see is a merman once in his life, just a merman, and he almost blows the conch, which was, I guess, would have summoned the merman. And it is such <laughs> a beautiful moment at the end of this film when Bradley Whitford's like, there's been an explosion, uh, a grenade explosion, and Whitford's like 
knocked down and through the smoke he sees and it's like almost lovingly like the the way the music plays like he finally sees this merman and then the merman just it's the it's as gross as richard jenkins said because it's messy there's blood flying through the merman's blowhole Oh, it's beautiful. It is a thing of wonder and beauty. And just his final words of, ah, come on. Megan. Perfect. As we're getting into the um, the killing the kids here, but uh, what's your favorite, like, kill in this movie? Oh, damn, dude. Uh, there are so many good ones. Like, uh, the unicorn stabbing oh, that guy God. to death is the thing that immediately comes to my mind. Um, but the giant snake, I'm a big fan of. They have the evil dead tree. <laughs> yeah. This. Um, but that, yeah, I'm going to have to give it to the unicorn. That unicorn. So all these monsters, that unicorn stabbing the guy with his horn. I'm going to go a little outside the box with a kill I love in this. Because it's not quite, I mean, it's a death, but it's like, I, I, technically it's a kill. I am a big fan of when a moment gets super built up yes. and then just just for for lack of a better word and the perfect word just hits a wall and dies and that's exactly what Chris Hemsworth Chris Hemsworth has this great like he yes. is the alpha <laughs> male hero and you believe he can make that jump that crazy jump against up against that gorge <laughs> and you almost forget the scene you saw earlier with the oh, eagle. I sure didn't. <laughs> and he's getting ready and he goes on this thing and they're all like, he's going to save us. He's He can do it. And he hits that force field or whatever it is hard. In this, and you watch him. Like, it is cruel to him because he keeps hitting it as he's going down and it keeps lighting up. And he keeps hitting it for a long time. Oh. For so long because it's so deep. Oh, it's so mean. <laughs> and yet it's so funny. <laughs> um, that's an excellent one. Uh, Marty disemboweling the, the zombie with a trowel, even though it's done off screen, is hilarious. Um, oh, gosh. There's so many good ones. In, there's just so many good things in this movie. <laughs> What's your favorite monster then? Is the merman your because I mean the merman's an obvious favorite one, but obvious for a reason. Uh, the merman is excellent. Apparently, Sigourney Weaver was really excited to have a werewolf on set. I I, um, I think that's an excellent werewolf too, by the way. Oh, it's great. Um, if you guys haven't already seen, I alluded to it earlier. If you haven't already seen the kill count on Cabin in the Woods, go and check out the kill count because James A. Janice gives a ton of fun behind the scenes um, stuff. I I am a fan of of like kind of the discount pinhead uh, because I really love that character a lot. Um, I, I find that ballerina with the face that's open it's all like the teeth i find the her, sugar plum fairy yeah i find her very disturbing <laughs> um like i said i really liked i really liked that they had the evil dead tree given how influential evil dead was on this film it, it's um, amazing it's so good watching this like it's one of those sometimes and you know who i think does this really well uh guillermo del toro even in a movie of his uh, a del toro film that i don't think is that great 
you always get the sense of like he's there playing with his toys like creating something <laughs> he loves and this the the final act of this film when they go down yes when, when our our two final people uh, uh marty and dana when they go down you have a sense of they were having a blast creating the monsters or building on monsters that they already loved like it it oozes out of the screen the joy of that like there's an evil clown that is definitely inspired by pennywise um there oh gosh there there are like creepy people with masks on like they're the strangers or some shit um like Basically, every type of horror movie that could be seen, like, there's something in this movie that alludes to it. Like, there are allusion, like, um, just that one scene of all of the different, like, prison cells, basically, um, conforming, configuring together, like, a, a giant Rubik's Cube or whatever. What Each one has a monster. There are so many references to so many different horror films just in that one scene. It's so good. You all... Uh, Oh, I, I, the only the other thing I was going to say is that um, one thing that Drew Goddard said uh, in terms of, like, the passion behind this movie, like, they did as much of it with practical effects as they could, which he, he said was a very naive <laughs> assumption of a first-time filmmaker. Um, but he basically said that he wanted to make this movie, like, be under, like under the impression that he would never get the chance to make another movie ever again. And so he he went all out put, on this. Basically. Put everything you want in there because who knows so you get another chance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like in a lot of ways, like for, for a lot of people working on this film, it's like there will never be a movie like this. Like this is the movie of your career. And I feel like Drew Goddard really treated it like it was. Um... You even get a sense of, I mean, you don't see, there's a scene where you see the monitors of all the other cities in the world, countries in the world that that failed. And you see like a King Kong type thing that happened. Um, the Japanese one is great because they take the Japanese like kind of ghost uh, films. Yes, that the in like the, the late... 2000s yeah uh, before the 2010s there were a lot of american japanese horror remakes like the, uh, the ring and the grudge and uh, a bunch of other ones trying to cash in on the success of those um and so seeing like this movie kind of do a little fun take on the japanese ghost girl film was pretty pretty spectacular when they turned that i remember laughing so hard in the theater when they turned that ghost into a frog and all the little girls cheer and then the evil has been defeated <laughs> and then um richard jenkins is like fuck you fuck you <laughs> um my my friends and i quote that all the time in fact that same friend that i recommended this movie to that same co-worker she actually when she sat down and watched it with her husband she saw this movie and went oh so that's where that gif is from <laughs> <laughs> and she was very pleased that they were basically virtually 100% unspoiled. But it's like, it's nice to know where the memes come from now. <laughs> um, Yeah, definitely. So the... Um, what was I going to say? So the, all these characters kind of 
supposed to represent some sort of stereotype. Uh, you know, we've talked about, uh, and the, but they kind of force these people into these. Yeah, uh, they they they're basically like pounding a square peg into a round hole to make these these people fit those molds. The athlete, the whore, the scholar, the fool. And the virgin, the virgin whose death is optional, but she has to suffer, uh, which is a horror trope. Now, here's the thing, and I want to pick your brain on it, because this is the one thing, if I was going to nitpick on the film, uh-huh. I, I, I would, but I, I love the film so much, I'll, I'll, I would try to justify it. Dana isn't a virgin. She is just the virginal character of this film. Is that really enough or is that kind of weak sauce? Um, it makes for a funny line towards the end of the movie. That being said, no, there are plenty of people you could have picked out who would have fit that bill perfectly. But I guess the justification for it is getting a group of people close enough to those requirements. And I also think those requirements are a little bit more loose, kind of depending on the locale, too. Because, like, again, that um, if you looked at the Japan office, that was a group of kids. Like... I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, like, I, I'm sure one of those kids could have been a scholar and everything like that. But, like, assigning those labels to children seems incorrect, if that makes any sense. Like, it seems like um, this would have been the requirement strictly for the American branch, if that makes any yeah. sense. Um, let's talk about the ending of this film. Because... Yes. <clears throat> I also, first of all, the last act is so insane uh, when everyone comes out. And then our two heroes who are left, Dane and Marty, they get down there and they're like amongst the, the puppet masters, you know. Um, but this movie does something with its very end that I also have a soft spot when a movie does this this movie ends the world yeah not not a whole lot of films have the cojones to do that and i always and there are some films that i think are only okay but then they end the world and this film i think is great but there's some films that i think are only okay but then they end the world and i'm like that was yeah that was ballsy of you yeah, um, especially because, like, films are where we go for escapism. Even even horror movies, to an extent, um, uh, you can experience a lot of catharsis from horror films. Um, so ending the world is a, is a bold choice for a piece of escapism. <laughs> and, you know, Marty talks about earlier about how we're, like, kind of too chicken shit to just let society crumble. And, and maybe it should. And now, then, at the end, it's up to him and Dana to decide what happens to humanity. And, you know, Sigourney Weaver basically tells Dana, like, you have to, like, shoot him, kill him, and the world will be saved. And there's a moment where it seems like she's going to do it, although she says she probably wouldn't have. But, I mean... Like, I mean, what, she what? says it, the whole world. It's yeah. a selfish choice. Um, for for Marty, he he's going to die either way. 
And so for, for him, it's a selfish choice to choose to end the world as well. But it takes down the organization that murdered all his friends. Uh, but, like, I don't know if he has any family or anything else. And that's the, that's the great thing about it. Like, I'm of two minds of it because I get the impulse of maybe this world doesn't deserve to live. Let's take it all down. If this is the way the world has to go, go on, then then fuck it. But also, uh, like, you know, bite the bullet. Like, save every – there are a lot of good people out there. <laughs> I mean, again, we're living in the time of quarantine at the time of this recording. Maybe don't put your own personal needs above that of society. <laughs> yeah. But but like that doesn't seem to be the overall message of the film. No. This is more of a um like if you want to take a, a step back and look at this, you know, from the the meta fiction um sort of commentary. Uh, aspect. These are basically characters that have become self-aware that they're that they're in a movie. Obviously, that's not in the text. I'm talking about like this is kind of representative of that. They're kind of characters that have become self-aware of their situation. And so of their own free will, they choose to end the story instead, um, which I think is interesting because, again, if you if you keep with that connection that the audience is you know representative of the old gods then basically what these two characters have done has decided well we're not going to finish your movie and as a or we're we're not going to end the movie in the way that you want us to and as a result the gods destroy the earth or aka the audience takes to the internet to (laughs) to to virtually destroy this (laughs) (laughs) destroy this creative endeavor it's also funny one of the last lines is about how like uh, i i can't remember it exactly but it's basically the idea of like wow that would have been something to see those old gods like that would have been made for a good weekend (laughs) and the they only give us a glimpse they just give us a hand like it's like they don't even give us the satisfaction of of seeing the total like all these gods which i also kind of like um it was a like no joke the last 20 minutes of this film my jaw was on the ground because i i knew that obviously that there were that there were people orchestrating this scenario to go down like a horror movie that did not prepare me for the bloodbath at the end of this film and it did not prepare me for the total annihilation of the planet as well um but I will say that my, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I went and saw this with my cohort, Kristen. Well, we, whenever she wanted to say something about a movie without giving it away to somebody who hadn't seen it, she'd always be like, oh, well, man, it was super crazy when the aliens came down and killed everybody. Man, what a, what a crazy way to end the movie. Well, she and I got back to our apartment after we watched this movie and our other roommate, my co-host Katie for a lot of things, she asked us, oh, well, what did what happened? You know, what did you guys think of the movie? What happened at the end? Because at the time she was far less tolerant of my horror movie watching. <laughs> um, so she'd want to know what happened without actually having to sit down and watch it. And Kristen stood there completely dumbfounded and went, well, the gods rose up and killed everyone at the end. 
And <laughs> Katie laughed and went, no, really, how did it end? <laughs> uh, see, she was the, um, uh, uh, the girl who cried uh, aliens coming down and the, killing everyone. The girl who cried werewolf, yes. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I love same thing happened when we went and saw a Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love this film. I'm so glad that we took a little break from our lost duties to discuss it. But um, I guess that's a wrap on Cabin in the the Cabin in the Woods. I always forget to say the first the. Uh, Will, do we want to do like a man in white and a man in black? <laughs> Not that that really um, applies oh, to this series, but <laughs> I guess my my Jacob is that they decide to end the world. That is delightful, yeah. And my man in black is I think the virgin thing's a little and, and this is a nitpick. I think the virgin thing's a little like trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. I think that's fair. Uh, and and no movie is perfect. Um, you know, everything's made by people and people are flawed. So, like, we you can love a movie and still point out, like, without being too harsh, things that you think were unnecessary or could have been improved. But, like, at the end of the day, we love this movie. And um, I love it to the moon and back. And if anybody's like, it's overrated or pretentious, I will gladly fight them. Um, for me, my Jacob is... Definitely that moment, uh, <laughs> definitely the moment where Dana and Marty are in the compound and they hit the button to purge all of the monsters because I never thought that this movie would do that. And it did and it didn't hold back and it was amazing and beautiful. If I had to give it a man in black, I would give it to the scene where Jules made out with the wolf head. And I, I know that that whole thing was to show like that she was becoming a more promiscuous character but to me like out of everything I'm like that this feels like it's the most out of place thing in the entire movie Megan, <laughs> I don't get it Megan that was a moose <laughs> you're right I, I I am so mistaken and I'm so sorry for misidentifying that that beautiful majestic creature uh Megan where can the people find you you guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Menguin. That's T H E M E N G U I N. I also have a YouTube channel called Silver Screams, where my co-host Katie and I talk about horror things, and uh, we're both members of Rooster Team Radio, where we talk about Rooster Teeth related productions. So go check those out. And you can follow me on Twitter at the Real Will Link, and you can read my book Crazy About Kurt. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it for Kindle. It's uh, it's a good read. Well, that's a wrap on our bonus episode. Hope you enjoyed. We might try to cabin do s- in the woods. Yeah, we might try to do some more of these. <laughs> um, and until next time, see you in another life, brother. Hey there, everybody. I'm Will Link of No Love Lost. With me as always... Megan Salinas. Hey, everybody. And we're here to talk to you about the podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. 
Uh, yeah, the Podcast Jukebox Network has been super supportive of us as we venture back to the island. Uh, and so we just wanted to take a minute to thank uh, them and to let you guys know that you guys should be supporting the other podcast put on by this fantastic network. If you are enjoying No Love Lost, definitely give a listen to many of the other podcasts, far, many of which are far less vanilla than we are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 off the Cuffs, which is kind of the flagship show of the network. It is the BDSM kink podcast that kind of launched this whole network uh, off. You've got the Goth Librarian podcast. You have Being There podcast, a great storytelling podcast. You have The Queers Next Door, also on the network. Uh, proud to be Kinky. Uh, Drinks with God. And a little podcast that's close to my heart, Megan. What is that one called? Will Sean Podcast? Yeah. Will mm. he? Oh, no. Spoiler alert. Uh, not as frequently as usual. <laughs> but you should definitely subscribe to all these shows, rate them, listen to them on iTunes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, these are all fantastic storytellers. It's so important to be sex positive. So go support these other podcasts. And uh, yeah, if you like us, you might like them. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. We're on the same network. <laughs> so yes, rate and subscribe to all these terrific shows. And don't forget to rate them all five stars. And also rate us five stars. Yeah, while you're at it, you're listening to us. Might as well give us a rating. <laughs> you're already there. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs>